Looking to create wealth and income through high cash flowing real estate? Self-storage is the fastest growing and the newest real estate asset that has outperformed all others. What's its secret? I'm AJ Osborne, and with over a million square feet that we have built, acquired, expanded, and even converted big box stores from small third tier markets to large hundred plus thousand square foot facilities, we have seen it all. This is the podcast that we're going to discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self-Storage Income. Welcome to Self-Storage Income, and today we have a podcast that I have been waiting to do for a long time because it is so needed, and it's such a big topic, and uh, I haven't ever been really sure on how to handle this. So we've been waiting. I really knew who we wanted to have in for the podcast as as a guest because we wanted um, the experts to come in. That's it, the experts. It's a topic that you have to have it. Um, because it's so big. So what we've done here is we're all in the office together today. So it's going to be a little different of a podcast. It's a, it's a big topic. We're talking all about development, building, converting, and we have Forge Building Supply with us. And Forge has literally built thousands of facilities across the United States. Um, and we're going to have a really good discussion on Everything, the ins and outs, good, the bad, where everything's headed and how it's going to work. So without, you know, waiting any longer, we're going to break right into it. And Hamish and Scotty, welcome, guys. Glad to have you here. Um, Thanks for having us. Yeah. You know, we got a lot to go into. But before we do, I always like to set kind of the stage, let people know who you guys are. So if you could kind of tell us how in the world you got into storage building, first of all, and uh, kind of your, your background, and then we can go from there. Well, I, uh, this is Hamish Bell. I'm the uh, president and co-founder of Forge Building Company. We started in uh, 2007. Um, I got into the storage game in 99 when I came to America, um, knew some other New Zealanders in the industry, and had the opportunity to work with them and for them. And uh, then it led into me starting up um, Forge Building Company with Hayden Farrell, my partner. Awesome. 99. 99's when I came. Yeah, I got involved in the self-storage industry just on a whim because I'd left Arizona wanting to forge my way in the Pacific Northwest, and a buddy of mine was uh, selling roll-up door and hallway components. He said, hey, I need some crews in the Pacific Northwest that can actually build this stuff. And uh, so in 97, I got involved in uh, the construction of self-storage. And then from there, moved into cells of uh, door and hallway components and then into metal building construction and cells of metal buildings. So uh, I've been fortunate to see a lot of different avenues and angles uh, from conversions as well as new buildups. So it's a neat thing. It's an incredible business. It's changed. You know, the thing that I love about storage is, first of all, how dynamic it's been over the last little bit and all the changing that's come. I mean, what you're looking at as far as old inventory compared to new inventory that's being built is just, it's nuts. I I was down in Florida um, 
I owned a couple of businesses down there and it was, this had to have been eight years ago and extra space had built the storage facility and it was in, it was right outside of Naples and it, it looked like a hotel. I mean, I drove by it every single day when I'd go down there and stay to go to our business that we were doing stuff. And I didn't know it was there for a long time. And then one day somebody told me there's a storage facility. I drove by it. I looked up and sure enough, that was a storage facility. It looked exactly like a hotel. And at the time, you know, we owned small facilities in places like Pendleton, Oregon, right? It was very gravel roads, booming town, very, very different than seeing a facility that looked something like that. It was my first time seeing a multi-story climate controlled, right? Really well built fancy. You go in, there's this big lobby area and everything. That was my first time seeing something like that. Um, And now it seems that that's becoming quite the standard, particularly in first tier markets. When you guys first got in the industry, you know, how did that work and how that look when you were building, right? Was it pretty uniform on your building and what people wanted? Well, the first building I ever built that I worked on was a multi-story building in LA. And the majority of the buildings that we did when I first came to America were multi-story buildings. So I cut my teeth on all of the big, complicated, uh, tight inner city projects. And from that point on, um, you know, learning the tough ones first, it was it was uh, um, it was an easy transition into every type of self storage because we were going four stories downtown. LA. And, you know, from that point on, that's the heart. I mean, you're talking like South, you know, Southern California, that's the birth place of storage. So you're in the epicenter. That's how you got started. That's a pretty good way. LA (laughs) epicenter of self-storage building multi-story. That's, that's pretty way good way to get started. Fluent LAX (laughs) got picked up and went straight to the job site. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. And what was the range of size? Like, what kind of sizes did you guys see? Has there been? Um, I mean, obviously those those ones I'm sure were pretty big. Well, it seemed to be the model, at least in the Pacific Northwest, that um, uh, you know, sixty thousand was kind of considered the right size to build, and eighty thousand was big. And then it kind of over the years evolved into larger facilities, which, you know, started in the, you get 120,000 square foot facility and oh, wow, this whole model, the dynamics of it has changed. But again, the price of land changed as well. In order to make them pencil, you had to go up. And and so that's why I think they became so big. Nowadays, 120,000 seems to be the common number. You know, there are some, uh, I think, some entities now that are reconsidering and going, you know, do we want to have that much risk out there? Maybe the 60,000 model, we know that that works and they've really dialed some of their designs back down to a smaller uh, uh, size building. Have you guys seen design changes or have you guys seen like, I mean, we talk about new technology coming into the market a lot, right? Through Janice, who's uh, a sponsor on the podcast, through all these people that are now trying to get into storage to look at it much more dynamically as in how do we do this without having personnel on the small facilities, right? How do we do this so that it will be ready for REITs to acquire? So what did the REITs want when they're looking at buying it? There's a huge 
uh, we see trend in people building where it's like, I want the specs for whatever a REIT will acquire so I can have an exit strategy here. Um, and then climate controlled versus drive up. Uh, it, you know, when you're looking at the history of self storage and what you're in, obviously er different areas are different, but how has that changed and what has always remained constant, do you think? What, I, what I've seen change is the building codes, the energy codes, and the fire codes. That's had, a, that's had a huge effect on the way, as a construction guy, that I've built the buildings. Um, you know, originally I could do a four-story a four building out of all light-gauge steel. Then the building codes changed. Now it can only be a three-story a three building. The four-story buildings have to be fire-rated uh, ground floor. It's then three three stories of light gauge on top of that. So, um, so that, did that push the building size down? Well, it, it's increased the cost of the building and the complexity of building the building because you've got a fire-rated structure on your ground floor if it's a full story. So the, so the, the bearing walls have to be fire-rated. So that's a pretty big jump in that's cost. Big jump in cost. The other, the other thing is when the buildings, the way the buildings are analyzed, um, for climate control, there's a lot more insulation going into them, now, and that's developing all the time. Uh, air barrier tests, um, it keeps on developing and getting tougher and tougher to construct these things. Huh. What about drive up? I mean, are you seeing a, a trend in leaving the drive up model, or do you still see for a good portion of the country that still being a solid business model for a lot of people it seems like right now rv storage drive up interior driving units and canopies seems to be the the latest flare um for a lot of a lot of people in the drive up markets we see we consider drive up markets being secondary markets usually outside of major metropolitan areas so though that's where the drive up uh, model still seems to fit even though as we educate people in self-storage that that uh, interior um, controlled spaces can lease up for better rents, uh, the conversion of drive-up facilities can really be dominated by converting them into a climate environment controlled space and still have an exterior uh, avenue. But I believe single-story drive-ups will fade away uh, in as we move forward in the industry. Do you think a large component of that is the cost of land? Has that been tied really closely to cost of land or is it access or is it a lot of those things combined? I think it's both. I, it's, it's really the environment of where, uh, again, if you're going to build in Montana out in an outlying area, you're probably just going to put drive ups because that's what people, they believe that they want. But as the U.S. climate changes as people being educated to what an interior space offers them to store their goods in a climate, environmentally controlled space so their stuff doesn't get ruined, that's where the education is coming out of the cities because that's what we've done in the big cities. Mm -hmm. Most people are moving to smaller areas because they want they don't want to be in the big cities anymore and can't work remotely. And so I believe the education is now be becoming more broadband where people who have been educated in 
environmentally controlled space so their their goods are not dampened or molded or whatever right it it it's it's moved in the right direction because they're coming out of those areas and they're driving that market you know and mm. you know it's a great example of this is uh um our our franklin property so we've got a property that forge helped us uh build on it and we did that one it was kind of this idea that the vast majority of people coming to this market are from first-tier markets. So we wanted to include things that just didn't really exist in the market. Like uh, we have multi-story climate controlled in the main building. Then we had some RV electricals um, and different drive-up uh, units that could also have access to electrical. But when we were building it, um, we included things like wine storage. And after we got that facility done, filled up in three months, 90% occupied. And we were like, okay, well, let's see if our study here was right. So we took all, all of our um, people coming in and it was well over six out of 10 were coming from Southern California. And so it was like this idea of hitting that customer and realizing where that customer was coming. And we were the price leader. So it's not like we were giving discounts. In fact, we were Compared to our competitors in a three-mile radius, for over 50% of them, we were twice the rent. And it still filled up just so fast. And mainly because in our three-mile radius, that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. Nobody had those products or product types. Yet that demand was so high because it wasn't about who lived there. It was all about who was coming. That's a huge point for sure. So talking about the building process, for anybody out there that's thinking about building, what exactly is that process? We get a lot of people reaching yes. out to us. They're like, oh, I had this land and, uh, you know, storage facilities are quote unquote, just these cash cows that, you know, they build it and they'll come. <laughs> they will come. Um, so the process, what does that look like for somebody that has the land, they're wanting to build a facility or look at building? What's that process look like from start to breaking ground to... Well, I guess the first thing you'd have to do, make sure it's entitled for storage. Not 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 everywhere is going to let you build storage on on a, on a piece of dirt. Um, then you go through the uh, the entitlement uh, piece of the puzzle where you're putting together the look, the design criteria, the and and making sure the city or the county is allowing you to build what you want to build. Um, once you know what the city and the county is going to let you do, you develop your business model, I guess, before that as well, so that you work out whether your climate control, your RV, your multi-story, depending on the piece of dirt and the demand around you. Um, then you'd go to construction documents, and once you've got your permit, you go vertical. And when you're finished with construction, you put the locks on, <laughs> rent her out. <laughs> you're good to go. What about, in, in, what about time frame for all of this? Like, you know, when, when people are looking at the entitlement process, when they're looking at plan designs, architecture, and then the actual building of the building before they even, before they start leasing up for it. So day one of lease up, what do you usually see as far as timeframes go? So the, the timeframes for the, the entitlement to the to permit, it takes longer than to build it typically. Um it, the paperwork uh, with the, the municipalities with COVID are taking twice, three times as long as they used to to issue permits. So um, the reviews are much more stringent than they ever used to be. 
Um, so the the yeah the paperwork side of the project to get out of the ground, I always say typically takes longer than it does to build it. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense, especially COVID wise. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And when when you guys are out building here, who are you seeing in the market? Like the market is just as you know been four or five years as far as development trends go and who's building and how it's been on a roar. Um, Self-storage building has been unprecedented. It seems like every year it's just topping the previous year, right? I mean, we were talking about you guys have like 70 projects going in some phase at any given time, which is incredible the amount of volume that just you're doing. Um, When you look at this, who are the people getting in are they the single operators? Are they the funds? Like, wh- what does that dynamic look like? I think the fund uh, capital growth uh, fund groups have really uh, set a fire underneath self storage because of what it, it how it uh, performed through the uh, 2010, 11, 12 uh, downturn in, in anything that was being built. Um, you know, self storage weathered very well in those in that time period with a very minimal um, hit in the market. So there's been a lot of monies that have been thrown into our market that are now uh, purchasing properties that we've never seen dollar values go for that high for a single piece of property. Because there's a lot more money into it bidding on those property to build. So I believe that's, you know, I, I still see a lot of um, cautious uh, concern about where to where's the next one going to be built by the people who have been in the industry yeah. versus the people coming into the industry. So that's a, that's a dynamic that we have haven't seen really until this gr- latest growth spurt uh, where where the people in the industry had a more dynamic sense of where they thought it, growth was going to happen and they took it more cautiously where it seems like nowadays, they want big and they want it bad and they want it fast. So it's it's a different dynamic than what we've had in the earlier years, uh, in the early two thousands. You know, this you know, we we see the same thing. It's a, obviously we talk a lot about what makes storage successful on here or not, and um, we talk about a couple things: supply and demand, but really harp on future supply and demand. Um, but another thing that we talk a lot about is you get like the actual asset itself right that's what you're selling you're selling units you have a market you have to analyze it and not everybody does this right and then the end product that they just spend millions on um, has fundamental issues with it Um, we've seen everything um, from units that aren't raised from the road so water can literally flow into the units. We've seen everything from the wrong bearing of roofs and snow. We we had we purchased a, a facility that built like it was like two hundred and fifty five by fives because they thought that that made more sense in revenue in a market that like you know nobody wanted no, five by five. nobody wanted five by fives and it was like twenty thousand people. <laughs> Like, so, but it showed a great return on paper. It showed a great return on paper. <laughs> exactly. And it showed a great return for us after we bought it from the bank and converted it into something better. Uh, yeah. But when you look at how do people avoid these 
pitfalls when building. When you're looking at building or you're looking at a market and other people are coming in building, what are you looking for to make sure that your storage facility, that you can get that thing up out of the ground? First of all, that it will be a successful project um, just in general. And that's dictated by time frame, making sure that you're staying with your cost, that you understand those things. Uh, so your economic success, but also the physical nature of it, that you don't have buildings that are flush with the ground and waters running into them and all, you know, that it just wasn't done right. What are your, what do you think are the biggest mistakes? Well, so we've, we've at Forge Building Company, we've developed some standards that we try and stick by to um, help our customers avoid any of these things because I've seen them all too. I've seen, you know, um, concrete without the notches under the roll-up doors. So everyone thinks the piece of rubber on the bottom of a roll-up door is going to keep the driving rain out, out of that unit. It's not going to. So there's, there's just lots of small things, uh, low slope, screw down roofs we try we try and keep people away from that sort of stuff we recommend low slope standing seam roofs which is a um, concealed fastener roof so there's no penetrating through the the panel um, these are all things that um, are, are pretty simple things but if you're if you don't have the experience in the uh, industry, then then it can be a first-time mistake too. We and, see that all the time with roofs. Oh, I mean, I can't tell you how many roofs we have to go in that are, oh, le- that are leaking. Constant. It's constant. Constant. Because they didn't put the roofs in right. And you, like you said, this is storage. You would think that it's simple, but we see these mistakes all the time. I think the education of getting a contractor – who has done self-storage. That's the learning curve. Everybody says, well, it's just a bunch of boxes. Well, it is, but those boxes being put together, the knowledge of doing that, but having a contractor who's done that over and over and over again, instead of trying to educate somebody to understand what the self-storage uh, uh, model is, you know, that's a huge gain if you're coming out of the ground and you you don't really have the background. So getting the right people involved, the people that have been building self-storage and not trying to get every bid out there from a contractor who's never built them because they'll lead you down an avenue that you don't want to go down. You know, a perfect example of this is, once again, that I want to talk about like Franklin. When we sat down with you guys, we were looking at not just um, the buildings on part of it that you came in, to help us out with because we had some questions on it, but it was also the flow, which you were telling us things that it was, this was our first building project. That's why I'm bringing it up because this was a learning experience for me. And when we sat down with you, you were walking us through things that had just never crossed our mind. And it had to do with how people accessed and utilized those units. So we made fundamental change to some of the drive aisles. We changed like, uh, different aspects of the loading and unloading. And looking back, it, we we say they're simple things, but these are things that can't be changed. So they may be simple, but it's the difference or make it or break it in that business. When you're talking about not having a lip up to meet the door, that's game over. Like you yeah, now have a repetitious you, thing that yeah, continues exactly. on and on. It and never on. ends, and you can't change it. It's not like you're like, oh well, let's just go now make a lip on this slab. No, nope. that doesn't happen. So, although I, I think you're right, storage, a lot of these things are simple, 
But for me, the impact is just massive. It's not like it's an apartment building where the guy screws up on the counters. Well, let's just get another cabinetry guy in here to fix it. Because you only have a few things that can go wrong in that storage uh, uh, build. The roofs, the slabs, your gate accesses, all these kind of things that you have, like you were talking about this list, you get some of those things wrong, your project is kaput. The way the Nobody wants to buy it. The way the buildings are assembled as well. So, the you know, someone's going to hit your building eventually. 100%. Every day. Every, yeah. <laughs> so so we, we build our buildings, which is a typical design that we've developed so that the parts and pieces are interchangeable easily, so that the, you're not disassembling the whole side of a building. Um, we just, there was a building, what was it, Rock or somebody was talking about a building just recently where the they would have had to replace the entire wall of because of the way it was constructed. It was constructed. Yeah. One part got hit, yeah. but it wasn't easily replaceable. I can't remember who that yeah. was. Because it was built more like, sorry, that is a huge piece. We try and make our parts and pieces typical throughout the building as well so that you don't, you know, the the... The building system for self-storage is only for self-storage. You can't use it for build a house. You can't use it to build an office. It is it is specifically designed and developed for self-storage. We maximize the spans of the steel we use so that it's economically driven. Um, and we try and make it typical so the guys in the field that are erecting they are dealing with the same part and piece a hundred times over that day versus a hundred different pieces a hundred times over that day. Mm -hmm. So that that just creates some efficiencies, right. um, and it's easier to train someone on a typical piece than versus a a uh, hundred different pieces. And this is important knowledge because this is um, acquired knowledge. Like I, and I view this and I talk about this a lot on the podcast, how we have learned knowledge, which means you read a book about building self-storage. Maybe I build apartments and I read something. And I'm like, oh, I can do that. But then you have acquired knowledge and acquired knowledge in storage is very impactful because it's these little things that you're talking about, right? Like, oh, you didn't. It's how you construct it or where you put everything from gate or, you know, I, I don't know why this is, but people in storage thinks that it's like Mario Kart. They're just like driving all over. They're hitting every gate and building and the whole entire thing, you know. Um, yeah. So if you don't have a system that can be easily replaced and changed out, those capital expenditures or this idea of having to redo your roof in five years or, you know, those capital expenditures eat away your entire project because storage doesn't have revenue quantities like a lot of other asset classes do. It's simple, but the moment it's not, your profit's gone because there isn't massive revenue to support huge capital expenditures. So this idea of building it right is so critical because you don't get multiple tries at that. You got to re-roof an entire storage facility every five years there's no money. It's no. gone. You want a, you, you want a, a roof that's going to last you a minimum of 20 years, and that's just the paint on it. That's, yeah. not, that's not the actual panel. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, the paint coatings is exactly those things have come a long way since since when we first got involved in the in the industry. The, the metals themselves, uh, they're, they're prepared a little bit better. I mean, we used to build with red oxide. Yeah. Red oxide's gone in way, way of the, the, the uh, covered wagon now. 
on, know, on the they're still using it on the east coast a little bit I think oh okay. yeah they, they, they <laughs> well, they're kind of behind you know <laughs> those guys they don't know how to do anything over there. But, um, but we do prefer the the you know the G60 Galvalume so you walk inside a unit everything's galvanized yeah. So if you wanted to, you can go in there and you can take a pressure wash to the whole system. Oh, nice. Clean it out. This is actually a really good subject. What What do you guys see as being these innovative, on the material side, what do you see as being these new and innovative changes in the industry? Yeah. What trends are you seeing? Because, I mean, a lot of the older facilities that we bought were done out of wood. Um, so, you know, steel is basically, I, I do not compete against wood buildings. When someone tells me, that that I, that I'm uh, bidding a self storage against wood, I invite them down to uh, ISS in, in Las Vegas, and I say, you, "There'll be thirty different builders down there. You find me a wood builder." Yeah. <laughs> so they don't exist. They don't exist. It's it's the only time I see that is those one one off carpenters that can build their own deal. Um, sure, I think back when when wood was popular, the development of steel. Um, just started started to everyone saw the benefit of it. You can you can span further distances with steel. You can um, which means less labor, less um, cleaner attachments, um, more secure. Uh, I think I think you the um, you know obviously the building code doesn't recognize it as a fire uh, assembly, but we all know that. You know, steel's going to burn a lot slower, and then a piece of wood is going to. So, yep. so uh, what other trends have you seen change? Wood seems like it. It's got, but it's important to know because if you acquire one, I mean, look at um, our northern one uh, that we did. We tore down all those buildings, so and reconstructed new buildings. Half of them are made out of wood now. All the new ones that uh, we built and the office and everything aren't. Um, but what are other trends, gates, things like that, that you're seeing come and kind of have really changed that people need to be aware of when you're building new? So you're not building something that's a, you know, was good or popular ten years ago. I think in the industry, you mentioned, you know, you drove by a, a facility down in Florida that looked like not a self storage, and I see, think think the materials that are being used for the exterior cladding of self storages have gone a long distance and a long ways not only for making it look attractive but also making it practical because nowadays we're we're fighting an uh, a thing that's uh you know you have to um have an insulation package that is r38 on the roofs and r21 on the walls and how do we do that uh in a in a way that can be built quickly because time is money in construction so the imp panel nowadays which is an uh, it's an insulated metal panel that has a, a wall on the inside and on the outside that's metal with insulation hard rigid insulation in the middle i think that's a product that we're starting to use more and more we're seeing it in more facilities. They also make a roof panel that is an IMP panel. So you can get thicknesses of gauge of, of roofing panel and wall panels that meet the requirements of the insulation package envelope that are also attractive because you can lay them uh, lengthwise and you can lay them vertical. And a lot of times you can create some really neat uh, imagery on the exterior cladding of your buildings. And and they perform a lot better than a um, cavity stuffed 
mm-hmm. um, insulation wall. The the I think they are falling in line with the energy code a lot a lot better than uh, different assemblies of insulating a wall. Yeah, and we're seeing more and more of that now in our markets. Uh, I put it up and I started putting that up in 2007, 2008 in Hawaii because they have great heat loads over there. And so they started using it on a lot of products over there. And now we see it in a lot more uh, markets here in the United, in the in the continental United States. So it's moving that that direction, and again, energy codes are driving a lot of the costs up in our markets because we have to now meet those. Well, let's let's talk about that for a second here. What are you guys seeing in cost? And um, this is going to be a two for one question because it's a cost is obviously a big one because there's lots of things to be considered. Um, but first, let's just talk about cost to cost trends. And then I want to talk about how costs compare to ground up, uh, drive up, um, multi-story, and conversions are three types that we generally see. And we want exact numbers. And <laughs> yeah, right, we all hold you this all to you. So exactly. So in general, what are you seeing in building cost, and what are the things that either drive them up or bring them down, and what are just kind of your core costs that can't be you know, really taken away. So we've seen labor, obviously, labor costs have increased. Um, They're just going to steadily go up, I believe. Uh, I think the last five years has been a labor shortage. So labor shortage is definitely going to drive the cost of labor up. Um, I've been fortunate when I got into the industry, I started building these things myself as a laborer. So I feel that the labor portion of my company is strong. We have a couple of hundred guys in the field um the that are that are that are on payroll employees so um the the labor costs though we've you know we've seen different benefits and different things that have all which you could probably speak better than yeah. <laughs> better than me about um yeah. but that's that's the cost of labor that's got that's gone up i mean you, but you do bring up a good point that cost of labor um even with you know your company alone and these other companies that we work with on what what is considered a total compensation for employees, right? So labor direct or straight line cost is only one component of this plethora of cost. And we've seen it across the board, not just in um, obviously self-storage building in industries, but the total compensation for employees has skyrocketed in the last three or four years. Um, and that tends, and we don't see that trend obviously slowing down because now we have a new minimum wage that's coming out, and um, so we'll see where that goes. But yeah, so labor's a big one. You know, these buildings don't stand themselves up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we we need people people putting these buildings up. Uh, material costs too. That's that's another big increase that we just it continually increases. Um, yeah, it's nothing that uh, our us metal building providers provide. <laughs> we buy it from someone to build it, and that's the costs that are going up. And how that that cost um, in the last two years? Maybe it's just in my mind, but I feel like in the last two years it just soared. 
Has it been steadily increasing for a long time, or, do, or is that just me looking at numbers and getting more sensitive to it? Or there's different different effects on the, steel's a commodity. The, yeah, the metals. The, one so of the, the, yeah, the steel. The steel. I think um, during this during this COVID year, we've had a high demand of on appliances, high demand on automotive, and I think there's been a um, a shortage. Of steel being produced by the um, U.S. mills just because of COVID, you know the restrictions, the safety that they have to do for their employees working the mills. So um, it's supply and demand. There's a high demand and a shortage of supply. The cost's going to go up. Do you see it for people thinking about some of these costs? Um, it, you have commodities which change. Is this something that you? Think that people should try to game the market because I, I hear this right. I hear like, oh, it's it's really expensive to build a house, so I'm going to wait. I get, and I'm I like, get, eh, it's never worked in history. But I get asked this too: How do I hedge this? Yeah. And I'm like, well, you got to go buy a few hundred tons of steel when it was cheap, and then you got to so you do this you, ten years ago. Yeah, been great. There, there's really, I think it's on a um, case by case basis of when you need the when you need the um, steel, and that's when you order it. You've got some examples of that you've done on some case studies that yeah yeah I've I've uh, looked at it to where we would purchase the material pre we know there's an increase purchase it have it rolled have it that product shipped close to the site so it's shipped it's offloaded it's sitting in a warehouse well then we have to again we got to re reload it reship it to the to the site. Those are hard costs that you're not going to get away from. And actually, in doing that model, uh, it was just as expensive, if not more, to try to pre-hedge it and, and order it early and have it have it stored in a, in a facility, then move to your site, rather than just buy it when you need it. Yeah. Right? Handling it once is a cost-saving scenario. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, damage of product, you know, we have finished product. A lot of our interior hallway systems are all finished products. So we really only want that product moved and shipped once and, and handled once. I think the frustrating part for our customers is that the forecasting, we don't get very good forecasting from the people we buy it from. They don't get good forecasting from the mills that they're buying it from. Yeah. And that, so that, flows downhill to the end user, which, trust me, if I could hold a price for till the end of time, I would, but that's out of my control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. What, and so steel is obviously a big one. What are some of the other material costs that you're seeing and what's been the effect over the last few years? Well, I've just heard that concrete's gone up over the, over the last year. Um, you know, that's that's a big one. Because Insul insulation, I know, has increased. Insulation's increased. So everything, you know, it, it, within a, a margin, it seems like in the metal metal market, we see it all at once. Where, yeah. Where we'll see it, okay, we're willing, to, us as a company are, are willing to, to hold on to the 5 or 6% increase and not pass that along. But then when it gets into 12 to 15%, you know, when is it? When do we move that? But it seems like when that happens, it's not just twelve to fifteen percent; it's thirty percent. So that adds up quick. Where other uh, commodities, they seem to just—it's a gradual. It continues to go up. It's like the stock market, right? We're gonna we're gonna make twelve percent on it every year. That's what we project. That's what you're gonna probably project 
in construction costs. I think if you look at the cost of, you know, being a construction company owner, I own a lot of equipment. The equipment costs, um, they're always increasing. The, um, for instance, your vehicles that, that, that my crews and the, and the tools that they drive around in, that's all, that's all increased. Um, so, yeah, those are all things that, you know, the, the equipment's a big one. The, those big steel buildings can't be, you know, carried up a ladder. A lot of the time we're using equipment for safety. We're using equipment to lift. And um, that equipment cost on, on a project can be huge too, especially uh, tight job sites, um, you know, tall vertical, you know, 50, 50 foot in the air. You've got to, you've got to use machinery for that. And um, you look at the, the cost of a 100-foot boom lift, um, it's expensive. So that, you know, and this brings up really kind of a segue into understanding more of these costs and which I, I agree with you. Timing generally doesn't, and I like to think about it like this, one of the biggest cost components of storage facilities, the land, right? So if you're waiting to save 5% on the metal for two years, you're going to spend 20% in land costs, <laughs> which was bigger, is you know, eclipses that 5% by far. But um when you're looking at these building costs and how they're affected into the cost for investors or builders, let's talk about the difference between uh, drive up, conversions, and um, multi-stories. Uh, what do you see in a cost differential in those and what drives the difference in the cost? So I think, you know, uh, obviously the most economical out of those three is probably conversion. But you're paying more because you've already got a structure. So you're paying more for the land with the structure on it. So construction costs, that's probably the the least out of the three. Um, a perfect example of that is, you know, different time, five years apart. But when we built, uh, we built one, yeah, four or five years ago, we spent $3.5 million on it in our conversion just to get the land of the building, we spent four point five yeah. million, and we haven't even—it's yeah. not even but close. You've, to but be you've ready, got but a shell of a building. Exactly, you've got heat, air, whatever is included yep. in that building, you've paid for. And now, if you just go in and you're infilling that system, you've got a light gauge non-bearing system. Uh, if it's a single story, and so that that's non-bearing, so it doesn't need to be holding anything up. It's it's protecting your goods that you're storing is all you're doing. The, you know the, the next one would be um, would be the single story model and you know the single story model is so dependent on the ground as well um, whether you're importing or exporting as we talked earlier you put so much into stormwater that you don't see before you actually see a vertical building there's so much money in the ground depending on how you handle the stormwater and then obviously the third one is the is the multi-story number, and I'd say that's probably twenty-five to thirty percent more expensive than the single-story mm. model, um, just because you've got elevators, fire sprinklers, um, you got more 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 structure bearing on one spot, so you've got more foundation, you've got um, tiered support through the building, and and the elevators and fire sprinklers also. Um, Typically, the the exteriors are more expensive as well. They want to be they want to be um, dressed up more. You know, it, it's interesting when you look at how you have to play with these things because there isn't a set way that is guaranteed to be the cheapest or anything. Even when I was looking at drive 
uh, drive up, you talked about 25 to 30% more. Well, on our one drive up building that we had, which also included some multi-story, but the ground, just getting the civil and stuff done on the ground was $800,000 because it wasn't a small acre. We're not going up. We had this huge seven acres, right? That was kind of on a hill or thing. It wasn't anything major though. It wasn't crazy at all. There was no major work that needed to be done. And it still cost us $800,000 to have a flat space. Mm. That was it. And when you looked at that compared to the total building cost, I mean, our total building cost, land, everything all included was $4 million. So yeah, it's probably a third? Yeah. You, wow. so, or you're, you're at yeah. least a quarter maybe? Exactly. A third to a quarter of the cost is just the site work. was yeah. just the yeah. site work. So yeah. if I took an acre and could build up, it may have been you know it may have been cheaper to do that. You know, here here locally um, on the east side of town, you can run into basalt, right? Yeah. So if you if then you're you, then you've got a you're either um, blowing it up or chipping it out, and that that drives the cost up immensely before you can even put any concrete in the ground. So yeah. so there's lots of different things in the ground, cam- contaminated soils, um, un- unstructural soils. Uh, it's free draining. If you if you're if your um, stormwater is getting back into the aquifer, you've got to find that free draining and get to that. Um, which you don't know how deep that is. Sometimes you dig a hole in the ground and you find gold. Sometimes you dig a hole and you find a buried dog. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so for people just getting started, why don't you give a range on your cost? We'll take out the other cost, right? land, because that is so variable, um, even on a conversion in buildings, what would be a range so of difference? I, we can throw some steel building numbers at, at this. This is, this is, and this varies too. It's totally yeah. different. Like I could tell you a drive up, a drive up building, um, the steel building alone erected could be $14 a square foot. But that, then when we get into the particulars, you tell me that you want all RV storage or drive up RV. So the height of the building's 16 foot, where I said, well, my $14 was only covering a nine foot six Eve. Yeah. You know, okay. so, so um, that that's that's where the difference comes in. You throw climate control drive in, drive up, then you've got R38 in the roof, you've got R19 in the walls, you've got a lot more steel on the interior of the building. So your cost is going to go up. Could be closer to twenty. Um, so that's really a loaded question until we get, yeah. you know, drive up. Is it drive up RV? Is it drive up climate control, or is it drive up standard uh, eight foot high door system? So, yeah. Anyway. Talk to me about the doors. That's because that's you know. I was just thinking about the climate control drive up. Like, how does that? Yes. Were you? Was that what you were thinking? So about? I was thinking about that, and on the drive up, the doors like were so. We, we were talking to you about that project uh, uh, before we jumped on here that we were looking at doing, and we were trying to do something like larger doors that act more like a two-car garage as opposed to maybe a 10 by 10 or so. You know what I mean? Uh, those doors and those door systems, um, does that cost can vary. So if you want an insulate, if you're doing a true drive-up that's climate-controlled, you have to have an insulated door. Um, which, which I think, me personally, I think sectional overhead uh, seals up tighter against the frame and gives you that um, gives you that true climate that you're going to get inside that unit. 
where if you use a roll-up door, there's lots of voids. You're not you're going to lose yeah. lose the heat outside the doors. So you know, typically our drive up is we would put a hallway down the middle of the. Um, well, this is just one way of doing it. We'd put a hallway down and and do an encapsulated climate-controlled area that you access from a walk door, mm-hmm. versus driving up to it. Okay, so this is a great question to ask then. Um, when you're looking at the overall building of climate controlled, right? You actually have to construct the entire building and everything. What are ways that you see it working and ways that you see your pitfalls that people make that, you know, they should avoid when doing climate controlled? What are mistakes that are made? Well, I think, um, you know, Hayden brought up a very good point about... I'm sorry. Hey, 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 Everyone does that. Yeah, we always say that. Um, a, a, an overhead door, because overhead door does seal to the front of the building. The scenario that we forget about is that if we create the climate control out to the exterior of the building and we have interior climate control, usually the unit partitioning walls do not go full height in these in these scenarios, and they're not really airtight. So. If you open an exterior door and you have interior climate, which is, is is trying to keep the exterior elements out and you don't have a barrier wall in between your exterior and your interior climate, as soon as you open that door and another door gets opened on the other side of the building, that, in, that impact on your interior is going to impact the climate within that space. And then you have to then control it again. So the exterior door scenarios being... A roll-up door, non-insulated, and then put in a barrier wall that then encapsulates your interior climate so that it doesn't have an exterior access point scenario. It will, it, you know, you're going to save a lot of money in controlling that space. So that's some, that's an, a, an avenue that you can weigh out the the, the benefits against. Uh, and I, I think always you would uh, encapsulate the interior environment, environmentally controlled space, mm-hmm. not including your exterior drive Over that, that's more popular over yeah. over putting a sectional door and mm-hmm. a drive up. So that means you're accessing the climate controlled area through a walk door, and you're walking your your stuff in. Good the the, dr- the drive up climate control is very rare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't seen that. We were talking yeah. about that for one of our projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that would be a possibility or not, and we ended up just not going with that and doing the interior walkway, yeah. doing the hallway system with the access on the inside. So we, we see barriers also when you do have an overhead door because it does then uh, cover a lot of times everything nowadays is fire sprinkle. So once the door is actually opened and into the space, especially if you get a larger door, it'll impact your your. Um, your fire sprinkler suppression systems. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So I, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you this question. You both got to answer it. Okay. So <laughs> biggest mistakes that you see people make, and what they need to do to avoid them when building a self storage facility. So my my biggest one that I run into is the design professionals being hired. Um, that have a huge impact on the cost of the of the of the building after the fact. I, if I get a set of plans, I'm bidding from that set of plans, and that's that's what I'm bidding from. 
if I'm developing engineering the set of plans, then I've developed the forge building standards, the forge building foundation that I've worked long and hard on to minimize the costs um, for that for that building. So, so you um, can't be efficient if you're getting somebody else's thing. You some, just got somebody do it I have no control over. I'm copying what they've designed. I've had no input on the design. I've had multiple, multiple over the years projects where I'm where I've I've even had some of them that I said I've said I can't, I can't build this the way it's designed. I've had them say, "Here's your number. Here's the value engineering option." Um, if you had used my standards, I, I, we have that that going on daily. Um, so that's the biggest mistake that I see is um, hiring the wrong professionals. That they say, "Yeah, it's a storage facility. We can design it," but it's the parts and pieces that the guys that work every day with those parts and pieces are familiar with. Um, an engineer and architect, they don't really know the the um, cost of a U-panel, you know, which is what the panel that we use on the division walls just because it's most economical. Um, looks better and, and structurally works more soundly um, as well, where they could call out any 26-gauge, 29-gauge metal panel, but um, just with the way we design our buildings, we know that U-panel works better for us on those division walls. That's just one example. So That's a really good one. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest mistake that I see uh, in the industry is, number one, not using Forge Building Company. <laughs> and I think Hayden made a good point. Hamish made a good point. Sorry about that. <laughs> of, uh, of stating that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, again, it's a repetitious, continually repetitious uh, components. It's they're, they're repeated every five foot or every ten feet. So... The rain drip detail, number one of all, that's something that hurts storage owners more and more because the impact of water inside units is, is huge. Which is what I was going back to. That's designed on our drawings. Mm-hmm. That, that is in the foundation design. Yeah. But again, when it's designed by someone who doesn't know self-storage, they it's don't put it in. Yep. We try to bring it up whenever possible, yeah. but there's still 20% of the jobs that are built that are still they're wrong, mm-hmm. right out of the chute. Yep. And then you go, well, what can we do to fix it? And it, and then you then it just spirals down from there. So again, because we're building, uh, you know, a, a thousand boxes that are very similar, one one item that is repeatedly done wrong is a huge impact yeah. in in the building. Yeah, you, you've made that mistake a thousand times. Thousand a, times. Yeah, a thousand units. Right. That makes a lot, a lot of Adds sense. Adds up. Yeah. yeah. And why don't, you know, too, we've talked about some of the designs, everything like that. Why don't you give, um, you know, our listeners and students questions. What are you guys seeing in the market? What are you guys projecting now? We've talked about what do you do. You've talked about, you know, we've talked about kind of where you guys got started from and everything. But where is storage going? What, where are, you know, what are you seeing in the marketplace that's happening that people need to be aware of? Um, and where, what markets do you think are either overdone, like some insider knowledge, so to speak, uh, from you guys and what you're seeing? Cause you guys, I mean, you're building everywhere. 
and you, you're building everything, conversions and ground up, multi-stories, rural areas, you know, high density, RV, um, RV and boat specific. I mean, there's literally when I look at everything that you guys have touched, you know, I, I have not worked with ever or, you know, been friends with another builder that has that kind of experience in the marketplace as opposed to maybe I've done a few jobs. What are you seeing across all your jobs and across the United States that are trends going on and, and different things? Well, I think the worrying trend for me was when I see facilities going across the street from each other. That 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 yeah. that always makes me think, wow, they need that much here. But to be honest with you, I don't know the ins and outs of every market I'm working in either. You know, the uh, I'm not familiar with um, the, the 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 finer details when I get the project to build it it's ready to go you know that um, work should have been done that work's yes. been done before I've got involved yep. a, a lot of the time um, where if you if you want my expertise it's the construction okay we've settled we're building right here that's when I can help on the you know the the material types the engineering um, and those things are where I can help the the scheduling, the um, the the um, vertical building of the building. That's all all of the phasing, all of that stuff's where I can help on the construction side. To to work out every area that I'm in, we're doing a lot of work in Vegas. I don't know whether that someone's building something in in a high demand area or an overbuilt area. Personally, yeah. Do you see uh, any big changes, you know, moving forward on what's going to be required for building or building trends? Do you think some things are going out of, out or? So this is a some it's a it's a great question because I, what I believe and what I feel the where the industry is going is that there's some there's a lot of old product out in the market right now, mm-hmm. and then when it was built, it was built in some very, you know undeveloped areas which have become more and more developed but these properties are are very small so there are 200 300 unit properties well the 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 owners of those properties uh, uh, you know they built it when they were in their 30s and 40s well now they're they're at their retirement age and they're kind of going well here you go son here you go daughter this is a property for you. And they don't want that legacy. They don't want that. The kids sometimes, you know, they're, they're going to move it in a different direction. So there, I believe that there's going to be a big influx of properties out on the market that are small properties where a lot of the big, in, the big players are going to go, how do, you know, we want to grow in this market, but how do we do that? So I think as these smaller properties come online, there's a lot of new and innovative uh Things in the industry, like the no-key systems that that are out there, the, the the systems that you can control that property from another facility. So if you come into a market, you build your 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 home run property, and you have your management's there, and then you start looking around and see what these smaller properties are. And number one, they're probably old and dated. So number one, they need to be brought back up to speed. Number two, when the, the property was developed, the unit mix was developed for a certain dynamic for that property. So you need to reevaluate, okay, now what really works in this market so I can make the best benefit uh, of my dollar buying it and make more money as it comes out. So redeveloping 
and reunit doing unit exchange designs are I think it's going to be as as new. You know, we always see growth trends uh, where we're building new and then we kind of start slowing down and then we build new again. So I think the the downturn and the backside of the wave are these smaller properties that a smart businessman who has self-storage could grab, start grabbing these, do the redevelopment in them, do the work on them so that they become valuable properties. And then they're just part of your portfolio that you run from a single asset point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. That's, you know, we didn't even touch on that. Obviously, don't don't have time today, but there is such a huge amount of inventory on the market that all is going to need to be repurposed um, and uh, redone. But that will have to be a conversation for another day. We've already kept you guys for a long time. Um, this is going to be obviously an on- ongoing conversation. It's such a big topic and it's so dynamic, which is once again, I think the big thing that um, with you guys, the one thing that I, I've always taken away and you guys pointed to too, is you, you need somebody in the industry that knows the ins and outs because there are so many layers to make sure that this will all work, um, small and big. And uh, um, the pricing structure, how it's going to work, how to work with the city, all the stuff is dynamic and dependent on the markets the products, what you're building, who you're building it for, and can fluctuate massively. And if you get it wrong in the building process, you're in trouble. That's not the time to make the mistakes. <laughs> so do it right, get it done right. But with that, guys, where can people get a hold of you? Like where where should we send people that may have questions or anything else? Uh, I think you go to our website as uh, forgebuildings.com. And someone without an accent should say that so they understand. <laughs> we'll, we'll put forgebuilding.com in, in the show notes. It's applicable, <laughs> super simple, super yes. easy. Yes, and on our sites. Um, but thank you guys for coming in. Uh, this was awesome. We appreciate your time. Take it out. I know you guys are busy and killing it. Um, but this is of tremendous value. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for the Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, yep. guys. Hey, everybody, we wanted to take this moment to talk about our sponsors. I know this is a big podcast, so I wanted to insert it here because it goes along perfectly with what we're talking about. We talk about strategic partners, and both Janus and Live Oak Bank are your strategic partners in storage. Now, we talk about, even in this podcast here, with the builders talking about changes and advancements and what's going on, you need to know your metal cost, and you need to know trends that are going on in the industry. Janus brings in those metal costs. We know them for the roll-up doors, but also their innovative solutions with keyless technology through Noki, which we have not at one, not at two, but at multiple of our facilities. We do not build without it anymore. Um, it is, we believe, the trend of the future. You have to see it and check it out. Then Live Oak Bank. When you're looking at cost, when you're looking at value, whether you're building or buying an acquisition, your financing partner can make you or break you. Live Oak Bank allows you to have a partner that's in the storage industry. They know it. They can help you get the deal across the line. They do SBA loans. They do 
tons of them. I think they resign the most of the nation. I mean, it's they're so good at it. And one of the biggest hurdles for me for the SBA loan has always been time and the unknown. Live Oak Bank can walk you through it. So doing an SBA loan with them can be done easy and they'll help you get it all ready. They've done it a million times. Check them out. They're in our show notes. Um, They're also on our YouTube. So you can go learn more about them.